Sotans. Welcome to Sota. Here I have with me the venerable Sarah Kensler. No, my name is Sarah Kensler. Sorry, there was an inflection at the end of that. <laughs> like I was questioning what my name was. I know what my name is. It's Sarah Kensler. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today on this brand new episode of Sota. And I am joined by the amazing, the shiny, the prettiest, <laughs> the smiley, <laughs> Jasa McKenzie. And thank you for telling them that I'm shiny and pretty because, I mean, they could all get that from my voice, but I'm sure that they just wanted oh. a little. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Anyway, what's cool. uh, what are we going to, we're going to talk about some stuff? Uh, yeah, so on this podcast, we talk about contemporary art of the Twin Cities and beyond. Beyond the Twin Cities. Yeah, so I think we've got a little bit of all of that today. Do we? Yeah, yeah, we do. Well, we definitely have the Twin Cities. This is a little less beyond. Yeah, no, this is, this is, uh, Twin Cities-centric. Very local going on here. Super local. Loco, how loco this is. Loco, how local. Loco, how local this is, yes. Okay. All right. Right. Mm -hmm. So, many of you will remember our recent episode where we talk about, uh, Northern Spark taking a, taking a break for 2020. Do I Northern Spark? I, I'm familiar with this. What is what is this Northern Spark? This is the all night art thing. It is the all night art exhibition uh, that happens in the the summertime. Thankfully, thank goodness. <laughs> yes, uh, and we also reviewed the 2018 Northern Spark very early on in the oh. podcast. That, oh. that was like episode three or something. So if Man. you if you really want to see how far we've come in production value, you can listen <laughs> to that. Uh, we have, you know, chatted with them recently and learned that they have a community survey out that they uh, are welcoming uh, responses for. The Northern Spark Community Survey. So we will post a link to this in our show notes, uh, but definitely check it out uh, because they are counting on the whole community's uh, input because they're taking this year off to really evaluate, you know, the direction of Northern Spark, you know, make some positive changes, you know, and uh, there's a lot of good questions. You can really, you know, talk about your own experience, talk about what you'd like to see, coming up in 2021 uh and you know learn a little bit more about northern spark and this little hiatus so definitely check it out on our show notes or you can go to docs.google.com slash form slash d no 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 don't read the whole url what are you doing what are you doing what are you doing anyway i wanted to interject and you gave me that great opportunity because i just wanted to say that uh it's really awesome that they're taking a year off to reevaluate. This will actually, this taking time off to create a three to five year plan like this and getting community feedback is the best way for small nonprofits, especially in the arts, to survive. So, um, so yeah, y'all should, y'all should take that survey. We're not going to read the whole URL to you. There's more news. Is there? Yes. Oh my goodness. Have you ever heard of Artists on the Verge. I have heard of this, yes. Yes. This is a fellowship program. It is, and it's in its 10th 
iteration. Wow. Right now. That's awesome. So northernlights.mn, which also uh, sponsors Northern Spark, uh, announced the 10th round of Artists on the Verge. And this is a fellowship program for five Minnesota-based emerging artists or artist groups who get to participate in this fellowship. Uh, the five artists this round are Lindsay Hallickson, Esma Imadi, Kathy McTavish, Khadija Muse, and Chris Rackley. And currently, their artwork is on display in the AOV10, aka Artists on the Verge 10, exhibition at the Rochester Art Center. And this exhibition will be up through February 8th of 2020. So anybody listening from Rochester, definitely go check that out. It is being held at the Rochester Art Center. Um, and so you still have like two and a half months, almost. Less than. Yeah, fair enough. You still got a while. Esma Amadi was an artist in Suvac as well. I did go to see her work. It's really super cool. Um, she does a lot of things with both um, with textiles as well as uh, video work. It's a nice blend of the two mediums. We definitely recommend checking it out. And the Twin Cities does have a lot of art. We're all about it. But so does a lot of places in Minnesota. So let's give Rochester some love. Yeah, Rochester Art Center, you're awesome. Another one of our artists, Christy Furness, showed down in Rochester at the Art Center. Um, had a great experience. Had a great exhibition. So I wish I could get down to Rochester more. Indeed. Maybe we'll try. Let's in go. In 2020. Yeah. 2020. We'll make it a goal. We'll take a soda trip. We'll soda take a trip. Soda trip. Soda road trip. Soda field trip. We'll soda take a field trip. I like it. Yeah? I like it. We're going to soda take a field trip. Anybody want to come? So, I would like to discuss with you, Sarah, uh, the exhibition Queer Forms that was at the Catherine E. Nash Gallery on the U of M campus. I made it. I made it the last day it was open. I'm so, so glad that you were able to go see it. I actually went to go see it with one Dustin Stoik and another very good friend, Charlie. And uh, and it's it's a wonderful exhibition. We've got so some good. some soda interviewees in that exhibition too. Multiple. Right? Yeah. Alex Peterson, Christopher Selleck, and Sophia Sogni. Amazing. So cool. And one thing that I really liked about it is that these local artists and some of them are more emerging artists uh, were in an exhibition along with heavy hitters that are well established in the international art scene as well as in art history, uh, such as Catherine Opie, Andy Warhol, NBD, <laughs> casual, no, whatever, drop yeah. a Warhol in there, he'll be in there, totally fine, totally fine. So I would love to hear, like, okay, for folks who didn't get to see the exhibition, it was dense. There was a lot going on. Yeah, it was a very, like, packed show. Uh, I did find that artworks were pretty close together. Uh, not not too much that, I, that it was, like, a salon style, but it definitely, uh, you know, they definitely worked 
everything into that space. Mm-hmm. Everything that they possibly could. And one thing that I found actually really interesting on a curatorial note is that they grouped pieces together that looked as though they were all one piece or that it was they were grouped in such a way that is traditionally used for one artist showcasing a group of their work but mm-hmm. it was usually two artists and they were completely different like uh there was a big portrait that was taken in the 60s and it was surrounded by more decorative portraits that were taken in 2017 Mm -hmm. and they were arranged in such a way that the the kind of smaller framed ones framed the large portrait so it seemed like it was supposed to be all one piece but it was two artists from like two totally different lifetimes and there was a lot of that throughout the show that they were kind of grouped in this thematic or you know kind of complimentary way so how do you feel about that I mean that was really the first time that I had seen that approach taking place with um, mixing two separate pieces to make it look like one work I mean that was I think that one the one that you're speaking about was the only one that I really noticed Mm -hmm. where I was like oh this is two different artists yeah where like normally I think the smaller pieces since they're by a separate artist, you would have expected those smaller pieces to be grouped together um, next to then the much larger piece by a separate artist. So how do you how do you feel about that particular curatorial decision? I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, it was new to me as well. And I always like these ways of shaking up the norm. Uh, and it definitely made you or made me think about how they speak to each other, how they intermix, you know, how depicting uh, queer bodies throughout history is alike and different, um, you know, what the issues or, you know, themes that are being addressed are alike and different, how artistic process has developed in terms of technique and technology so I thought it was it was really cool I I wanted the space just to be a bit bigger just a like a little less uh just a little more space a little less dense um but it was still very successful and I think this technique really helped work with the the limits of the space I um I'm curious then, because that was not the only thing that the that the staff kind of. Um, I, I I feel like the only appropriate word is like they physically smooshed them together. Like visually, <laughs> things were things were a little smooshed, but it it made sense right. given the spatial constrictions. Yeah. How do you feel about including multiple full length movies in this exhibition? Yeah. So that was something that I wasn't expecting, um, but I do. I do love the inclusion of film. I do like that this had a totally wide range of media. You know, you had everything. You had, like, assemblage. You had, like, participatory elements. They created spaces for you to walk into. Yeah. So I I like the variety. And, you know, I, I don't want to have, like, a separation of, like, film and visual art. Um... I thought how... I mean, like static film and static visual art. Yeah. Yeah. I 
found it interesting how within the gallery they made a room in the center that you would walk in so it was able to be uh, it had these walls it was able to be curtained off at the top to make it darker uh, so and they had couches and headphones so that you could they weren't just uh, six films blaring out into one one space you could sit and tune into whichever one and kind of work your way around the room um, and it was also a great representation of there was black and white films to films that had that grainy look of being from the 70s 80s 90s they had things that were highly like cgi'd and obviously very new um and it obviously it's a very bright space so it solved mm -hmm. the light problem and there was like a couple of different types of films like there was documentaries and there were fiction films but all focused on lgbt plus experience yes i was personally not expecting that and so I just ran into a time constraint mm -hmm. where I went where I had something to do you know an hour later and so I couldn't really spend the time and of course I went on the last day that was my bad but hey at least I made it um, <laughs> uh, where you know I couldn't do a return visit uh, just to just to watch the films um, so I like the inclusion of film it was divided. Uh, it was definitely like, you know, this is a film spot. I think it was resourceful uh, in terms of, you know, solving the light issue. Um, I think it kind of created an, uh, a bit, I was a bit confused and maybe that's just me on like the layout because the film rectangle was situated in the center, but slightly more towards the back wall. Yeah, it was. So the first space was larger, and then it implied that you work your way around the walls and then cut through the film room on the way back out. However, on the other side, they made a small wall that, you know, was perpendicular to the outside wall of the film room. And then there was a support beam to the gallery directly across it. And it just made such a narrow walkthrough that I actually took that as don't go through here. Yeah. And so I ended up going back around and through the film room in the middle of the experience mm -hmm. and then got to the dead end again and then had to backtrack a second time and that but that wall was on one side the uh pubic hair piece which I will post photos of and then also on the other side was the chrysalic yeah. piece yeah and so I think that wall had to be a certain length in order to house that piece but it created confusing traffic flow for me and I was there on the last day there were maybe five other people in the gallery at the time but I could imagine how on an opening night Oof, that would cause man. congestion. Yeah. yeah. The, so the day that I went, um, there was actually nobody else there. It was just the three of us. And so we kind of, we split and we, we walked in different areas at different times. And um, I, I loved seeing the amount of work. Like I love yeah. it when an exhibition is just chock full of work, not French salon style, but um, I also loved the 
um, the mix of mediums. There was beautiful, just wonderful photography right away. There was text work right away. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as you got back further in the gallery experience, there was the installation rooms. um, And then there was the film room. And then you kind of got into, you were like, you entered a space where you were kind of weaving your way around physical installations in the middle of the gallery space. Um, there were pieces from that were protruding from the walls. There was a piece hanging from ceiling. Um, and as you got further and further back, the pieces were, there were still works that were affixed to the wall, but the installation sense became more prevalent because eventually got, you got to a Joe Sinis piece. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, where he installed the uh, the trough, just like he had done at Mia. Oh, wait, wasn't that Christopher Selleck? Christopher Selleck was in there, too, but so was Joe Sinis. But I thought that piece was Christopher Selleck. No. Um, no. So Christopher Selleck is the uh, the photographs of the oh, guys. Oh, right. And Joe Sinis is the, um, was the uh, colored pencil piece Okay. Of the cop bar. Oh, yeah. That wasn't oh. really a cop bar. And the yeah. name of the piece is escaping me right now. Sorry, Joe. Um, but it's but it's that piece and the uh and the trough. Right. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then earlier I misspoke because I said that the trough was the Christopher Selleck piece. Oh, yeah. No, that's just in us. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. One thing that I liked about this show was there are a lot of things to take away. There were boxes underneath a lot of the pieces that had pieces of paper um, or like postcard type things that you could take with you. So there were pages from zines. There were old uh, posters that were just, you know, photocopied. There were... Uh, I have some right here. Yes, uh, the, uh, some, um, reprintings of, uh, Kissins, <laughs> um, which was a, uh, if I remember correctly, like a, a blowback, like against George H.W.'s, George H.W. Bush's, like, anti-homophobia sentiments. Yep. And it was cause it was about the AIDS crisis as well. Yeah. Yep. Um, and this was actually in 1988. So this was the first Bush. Yes. Yeah. HW. Oh yeah. HW. HW. HW version one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, so like you could, that's actually a really good point. I did love how many physical mementos you could take home with you. Like this, The the replica of the uh, kissin that I'm holding in my hand right now is such good quality that I actually plan on putting it in like a like a frame. Yeah, yeah. I it up. I saved a lot too, and it's a it's a great way to take the exhibition with you because I you know ha- I collected it for my partner, being like, oh my goodness, you know, I I want to bring this home. I want to talk to somebody else about what I saw. Yeah. I want to I want to look up the history that this is referencing, um, and you know, a lot of it like ones that had poetry or writing. You know, mm-hmm. I I just wanted to share. You know, this print media and this you know, artistic word, artistic language with others. 
yeah. and prolong the experience by bringing it into my home. As well as they did have a free catalog, which you could take, which mm-hmm. it's not, you know, like a, like a big, like a museum exhibition but catalog. But it's still like, I mean, this is very, like they, they use glossy paper, which yes, I'm always it's, about. It's, it's, it is a nice catalog. And, and they had printed in color. Right. And they had a, a film map, so you could have a map specifically of the film room and then have little blurbs on what you're seeing there. Uh, they had free uh, safe sex supplies. Oh, yeah. As you walked in, there were, like, lots of different choices to take with you of free safe sex supplies. Um, so, yeah, it really had everything. It was definitely the the supplies, the um, starting the the entrance of the exhibition off with a text piece that really set the tone for mm-hmm. the exhibition. So I think that in particular was very well done, um, and also the hanging of different types of mediums next to each other mm-hmm. was also very well done. That's all that especially when you're working with can you imagine working with all of those pieces just on a list and trying to decide how they're going to converse with one another in the gallery space. I can because I got a master's in curatorial practice and that's exactly... You have a master's? You sound like someone who may also have a master's. I, In fact, I do. In art? In the history of. Wow. Wow. Oh my god, we should start a podcast. Oh wait. Oh wait. Mm. Here we are. Now we're we're done with that. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> on the on the flip side, when you on the the opposite wall of that entrance with the text bees, um, I get it. They had a few pieces hung up above the attendants' heads, and just right across the other way, uh, hung you know too high, but it was so that it cleared the top of the head of the person sitting, yeah. was a Keith Haring uh, kind of poster style that was about the AIDS crisis, but it just looked really out of place. Like, it was too high. It was, like, right at the beginning. It was, like, very separate from the other piece. Yeah. It really seemed like an afterthought, and it didn't feel like it was a part of the exhibition. Yeah. You know, those pieces kind of felt like they were always there. Like, those were fixtures behind the desk. Like, mm-hmm. they didn't feel like they were in conversation. Like, I get the practicalities there, but it really felt like, oh, we have this Keith Haring. Let's just, let's throw it up there. That seems good. This is, this is like... Toss a, it on up. It's an important person. No, I mean, like, do I don't think he... Like, Keith Haring, like, we've all, you know, kind of... We get it. We all know Keith Haring, and not that we need to, like, be promoting more, like, white male art. But I, I just mean, like, how, like, it physically went in the mm-hmm. space just was very, like, I felt disconnected where everything else, like, was in such close conversation that these other pieces were just, I like... I agree. It was just all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah like, just... Just kind of... there and it stuck. Yeah. Um, I also, I don't... I actually don't like the inclusion of entire films into the exhibition. And I'm not quite sure how I would do it otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, because that gets into a conversation about... How much work do you want your patron to do in order to become immersed into the exhibition? However, I do think that it does kind of offer this opportunity that, you know, if you, if I go in and I 
say, spend five minutes at each film, it does kind of make your audience have this diversified, like, kind of singular experience because the glimpses of the five minutes that I'm going to get on each film isn't going to be the same as the next person. So kind of, like, collectively, the oh. audience probably saw the whole film, but the but there, it's in little bits in, like, this dispersed memory, if you will. And, you know, as long, like, you know, uh, what the average time people spend in front of paintings is, like, eight seconds at a museum or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense, because they know what they're, they have expectations, they have preconceived expectations, especially when they're going into an encyclopedic museum. I don't know that those expectations would necessarily apply in an, in an exhibition like this. Um, I don't think so either. Uh, I just mean that perhaps it's not necessary for one to sit down and view an hour-long film. Perhaps you can, you know, you just take the experience of that five minutes that you spent and just that is your own personal experience at this mm. place and time. And, you know, as, as the curator and, you know, the the gallery wanting to put the the wanting to put this uh, work out there, just kind of knowing that collectively it will be seen. I mean, I suppose, I guess it like really bothered me because I'm a exhibition completionist. Sure. That's like a thing. Um, but I, I was, I was slightly annoyed that I couldn't watch the entire films because these are films that I had not seen before. I want to, when I go to an exhibition, I want to be taken into the experience. Right. I, I, I want, to be honest, I want a little bit of handholding because not all good art is immediately apparent. Right. But I mean, there are people who are very strongly on the opposite side of the coin as you are, that they don't want didacticism that they want like very free open interpretation mm -hmm. and I do think that this exhibition towed that line well because I definitely had points where I went up to a didactic and was like okay tell me about this piece and it was just like mm -hmm. the artist medium date uh others had long descriptions um there was the film book if you wanted to get it and that had like paragraph blurbs inside of it. Um, so I think that they had, you know, they, they obviously selected what they were going to expand on, what they were going to leave uh, open to interpretation and, you know, provided some, you know, if you wanted it, you could seek out more information kind of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I thought I, I had never run into an exhibition that had, length movies in it before so um and I and overall I appreciate the inclusion of so many works and mediums and forms of art speaking of forms I th I thought that this exhibition did a good job of representing different bodies yes there were I lots agree. of yeah there were lots of different outward expressions of gender and, you know, different scenes expressing sexuality. There were different mm -hmm. size bodies, different 
backgrounds, different, uh, you know, various stages of dress and that kind of like outward expression as well. I different ages too. Yes, the ages is something like sizes and um, uh, and other elements of physicality. I see represented quite a bit mm-hmm. in in many different ways. Age is not one of those things. I also enjoyed the scope of the ages of the pieces themselves. Mm, they had some mm-hmm. portraits uh, of a man cross-dressing from 1927. And then they also had works from millennial Gen Z artists from 2019. Yeah. I really mm-hmm. loved this inclusion of queer representation through the ages. I think it, it further cements the foundation of, of queer identity in, um, well, in specifically this instance in the American psyche. Yeah. Um, rather than it just being a 21st or 20th century, 20th or 21st century phenomenon. But yeah, and then there were, you know, like these, the Warhol hitting that like 60s moment, you know, and then of course... Catherine Opie coming in with the that 90s grunge feel and, you know, obviously a lot from the past few years and some uh, pretty young artists as well. Mm-hmm. I like this exhibition. It was supported by like 12 different agencies, both in and outside of Minnesota. It had the inclusion of both Minnesotan artists and outside. It was, it was intense. It was dense. It was dense and intense and um informative and um and really did speak to me i think particularly personally i saw a lot of elements like mm, sports christopher selick and uh flowers so things that were and those are just examples that are coming to my mind right now but there were a ton of other things that that are usually defined as either feminine or masculine that were um, inserted into the into the queer art zeitgeist. No, into into the um, the queer art. They were queered. They were they were queered, um, and and I just I actually appreciate that um, showing showing traditionally gendered forms. As queer forms, and I just got the title. Boop, boop. Well, this has been an episode of uh, Sarah figuring stuff out on air. <laughs> and I do feel a bit chagrined that we are discussing this at the closing. And so we cannot say go forth. Uh, however, it is 100% worth going online, following these artists. Mm-hmm like exploring more on your own um you know maybe getting interested in queer art there's lots of it it's everywhere has been around the whole time it's really beneficial to um to look at artwork created by people who are dissimilar to yourself in many many ways Mm -hmm. Um, it's a really super easy and accessible way to uh, learn about the world through a different perspective but you know what'd be super helpful, actually, is if our listeners could send us exhibition recommendations. One hundred percent. You can do that by emailing us. 
DMing us on Instagram or uh, which is now called Sodagram, by the Sodagram. way. Sodagram. On our Sodagram. The Sodagram. Uh Facebook also, I guess if you'd like. You can. Um you can also send us a nice little voicemail on the Anchor app and we'll include it in the show, which would be super fun. Yeah, we will. Um so our email is state of the arts pod at gmail. Yes, and all of our social media presence and contact info we do at the end of the episode and then after that we have some nice outtakes so (laughs) always outtakes outtakes forever outtakes forever and actually um on that note we this will be our last episode before the holidays and so uh this comes out the 15th so on the 29th we will be airing our annual Blooper reel, dun, 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 dun. which we will give the content warning for later. <laughs> um, so expect us to be uh, after this episode back on the twelfth with our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> uh, Sarah, Jason, you have an interview. <laughs> Boy, howdy, do I? Yeah, I talked with. Uh, two- Don't even. Tell me. Let's just surprise everybody right now. You know what? Fine. Let's do it. Right now. It's interesting that your your practice shifted in this very stark way from focusing on nature to focusing on what you're calling your, your archive. Mm. Was this something that you were kind of thinking about in the process or was it something that the objects lent themselves to naturally when you were looking through them? I think, well, I think part of the, with the end of, so I was part of this collaborative press and collective for Mm -hmm. five years and that had really taken up a lot of time in my personal practice. And so when that ended and it sort of refreed up my time and it culminated with my grandma's passing, I think there was something that just kind of sparked um, that made me really want to delve into, and in some ways, you know, my own like personal work or rebuilding or understanding family. And that, you know, in some ways it's like in that way, like your life permeates your art, right? Like I I needed to do this work, whether I was going to make work about it or not Mm -hmm. in that way, in terms of like understanding my family and sort of navigating those stories. Um, But I also think it was like a time that I gave myself permission to make this work that was far more weird and vulnerable and maybe a little bit, um, I don't know, maybe even like less um, critical in certain ways. Sure. Um, And so, and what does that mean? And and that way it was very freeing though. Um, Mm -hmm. I had spent all, you know, with my collaborative, we were often making things that had to be... um, you know, it was a lot of um, mechanics and science and plants. Systems. And systems and moving parts yeah. and functionality. And so this work was very much the opposite of that. It was very reflective and interior. Um, and per- and not that that other work wasn't personal, but it is very personal in a different kind of way. Sure. Um, so, but I, I think back to, though, I think this this sort of like right these moments in our lives where there's a change and we say why am I going to do this now or never or what's going to happen and so 
in some ways it's like the passing of my grandmother gave me permission then to make this more personal work which was a gift I think a gift for me in some ways um and I think that's something like all artists struggle with is like can I give myself permission to make this really weird thing (laughs) (laughs) that I that maybe has been on the on the back burner of the fringes but I felt something in me holding back to not make this work because Mm -hmm. I didn't think it I don't know Maybe I mean you were in the depths of your practice. Maybe it didn't it didn't really fit, and you were donating so much or giving so much of your time to your nature's systems, etc. Practice. Yeah. This would not have fit. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I still hold on to systems in different ways in terms of thinking about the organization of an archive or how to sift through these things or different ways of processing and thinking about time. What do what do the objects that you inherited consist of? Did you get like a bulk amount of just objects? Did you choose them? Were they given to you? I mean, what's interesting is sort of um, so my grandmother uh, lived in up about two hours north of New York City, um, and she probably since I'd say gosh, the early '60s, she was left actually by her brother this small trailer on a piece of property. So within this small trailer, it was kind of like her entire existence since I was a kid up through, you know, when she passed away. At some point, we had moved her out of there to move into assisted living and then eventually a nursing home. And so in the process, kind of cleaning out this space. And so in that way, I think of this as sort of like, what were the things that she had held on to in that entire span of living there that then we had to sort of go through and and collect and deal with? I believe this was, some of these objects were objects that my mother kind of saved, not even for sentimental value, but just the fact that there was all, all that there was left. Like an example would be like, um, there was a meat grinder, like an old, (laughs) right? Like 1950s, like tabletop clamp meat grinder that was in the garage that she thought, all right, maybe, I don't know. I don't know if she thought maybe Trey would want this, but this is here. Um, photographs of course seemed really important. Um, I ended up just kind of keeping folders of documents that I thought, okay, maybe I'll go through later and see if there's anything I would like in here. And some of the stuff is very banal. Like it was interesting. She had like the, uh, her job application to the job she had as a registrar at the community college that she had worked at, you know, for 22 years. So, you know, things like that. But I guess what was interesting to me is like, you know, what is left after a life of someone who was, you know, passed away at 90 a meat grinder, a nutcracker, a clock, some documents, some photographs. It's kind of incredible, right? In terms of sort of like what it boils down to that this person has either by circumstance maybe held on to or space or whatever. But mm-hmm. this is kind of all we get, how to reconcile with that and what does that look like? And then what are those, why did they choose these objects to hold on to? You know, and you can't fully really know. But one, one nugget that was like really important for me was um, my grandmother had held on to my, her father's will. And in this will, there was this really sort of interesting liner that was like, to each of my daughters, I leave the sum of $1. So this has been something that's been reappearing in my work, thinking about sort of the narrative of, you know, there's some family feud going on or dysfunctionality, what's happening here that no one had ever talked about. And sort of what does that look like? And I really have then used some of those objects, like, um, for example, the handle of that meat grinder often 
is installed with this text that is those words kind of falling and laying there. Yeah, draped over it. Yeah, and so I think for me, what even became more interesting about the archive was a lot of these kind of text pieces from this will that were very like strong and sort of chilling and maybe like, oh, maybe like your dad was kind of a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, yeah, and kind of like what that looks like and how to deal with that. And so I guess that, that, and in that way, that got me more interested in the notary stamp, which is another form of text to kind of think about how can I give these texts like new forms of life and also think about the weight of someone's words with that one piece from the will. Mm -hmm. And then also, as we talked about, kind of this idea of if I do it this many times, if I stamp it this many times, does it make it true or does it make it real? Given your propensity for systems, is there a way in which you have established working through these objects or do you just choose ones that that seem appropriate in the moment for creation you know the the one I feel like that was the strongest with that I really was like oh this needs to have a very specific life was the notary stamp in terms Mm -hmm. of thinking about it being a tool for drawing versus I had shown it as say an object perched in a part of the installation and I think that that didn't necessarily really do anything for it but it maybe let me you know, see it more and think about it more to then move forward to the next thing, right? So that specifically, I feel like, was very directed and planned, but often I think other times, you know, intuitive things have happened in the studio in terms of playing with text and laying it or nailing it or hanging it with a certain object or a certain way that just made sense. And usually it's funny because in my past work, I wouldn't say that I worked that way. I really would have to, you know, plan and sketch and draw and really think about how these kind of chaotic but yet still functional systems would connect and exist and so in that way this work has been a lot more freeing to make in that way um, and playful for me and experimental in a way that I wasn't giving myself that freedom before so I appreciate that about the archive. (laughs) So how did you come to this I this process of using the stamp to recreate the photograph? Well my background is really in printmaking papermaking and book arts like my old school BFA training. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, I kind of put printmaking like up on the shelf um, and was really working in sculpture and wasn't really utilizing that process. And there was something about coming back into this archive and kind of like going through all of these individual documents and in some cases cutting things out and isolating them like in the collage work. Mm -hmm. They really wanted, I don't know, there was something that I wanted to get back to with a tactility and a surface quality and a way to draw. Mm I think I also just became obsessed with kind of this idea of like the ritual of remembrance and also like seeing the name over and over and over and over again. Because it is her name in the stamp. Yeah. Yeah. So her name, you know, but there's also this, you know, muddled grayness that also happens in the excessive use of that um, where things are, you know, they're clear and then they're unclear. And so for me, that really lent itself to my whole sort of family (laughs) (laughs) mythology or like narrative in terms of how we relay information to each other and about each other and about our pasts but I liked that connection between this idea of this thing that signifies you know truth or legality then combined with this you know the act of a photograph which is kind of this as you said visual truth of a moment Mm -hmm. and how those together can become kind of this more abstracted than image 
to like think about and that you have to kind of move closer and closer and closer into it. The way that you're describing it and the way I was thinking about it when I was reading over your statement was that this seems like an incredibly personal practice that you're engaged with right now. Yeah. And I always kind of wonder when artists have a uh, a practice that is so personal or related to their family or their children or their heritage, is it important for you that if you were to show this piece that the visitors understood that past? I mean, I can certainly just appreciate the formality of it, the way that you've composed this work, like the it's nice. It's almost like being able to see brush strokes. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, you can see that it's a stamp, and there's more to look at when you go up close. So even just those formal details are intriguing. But is it important for you as the artist to let viewers know the history of what you just told me about this work, or would you just leave it up to interpretation? Well, it's it's been interesting because I've shown I've only shown this work. I've shown it twice now, and in one setting, I provided the stamp, the physical stamp there is like an object alongside these things, oh. not with say a, a very specific didactic, but sort of a yeah. this came from that, and there's a relationship between these two things. And another venue, I didn't do that. I just had these as we'll say prints or drawings on the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important for me to give some sort of context or statement, but I all I mean. Visually, I think they are interesting as objects for me Absolutely. outside of the family narrative. But I, I do think, and I think it's something I'm still sorting out is like, what do I want my viewer to take away from this if it is so personal and so embedded in my own familial history? And what does that mean? So I think I often usually will have some form of statement alongside, maybe not so specifically that this is my grandmother's notary stamp and this, 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 and this but at least acknowledging different ways that I'm kind of thinking about, what do I call it, the truthiness in family stories. And so I think at least to like sprinkle a nugget of that somewhere. And by truthiness, you're referring to the the vague truth that's passed down? It's like a game of telephone, you know, within families in that way. And sort of also that we can never, we never really know mm-hmm. someone as much as we think that we do. And then once they pass, like how do we kind of reconcile the person that we thought they were with the person that maybe we start to learn about more. And then also how do we reconcile like these two complex people that maybe um, isn't always something that we want to know or accept or even thought was like possible. Mm-hmm. So to see them as a, as a person separate from their role in our lives. Right. Exactly. And I think all of us go through that in some ways with our parents or maybe a sibling yeah. at some point. You know, there's this image that you have of someone as a child versus as a teenager versus as an adult. And same, you know, for people that know us as we move forward, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, that, and I think that's something that everyone has to reconcile with. So though it is extremely personal in my own interpretation, I think it's something at least that we all know that at some point we have or are currently dealing with in that way. So... What is coming up for you? Uh, what are you working on? Are you have any shows coming up? Anything like that? Um, I don't have any shows coming up. Um, okay. I've merely been on baby duty. <laughs> sure, there's a child. But yeah. um, it has it has given me a lot of time to write and reflect and kind of think about you know what I want my next body of work to be and how it's kind of a new way to think about how am I going to make work. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are tons of artists out there, amazing parents that are um, doing all of those things. And I am 
definitely looking to them for advice and direction. (laughs) But in terms of kind of what's on the horizon for me, I also have a curatorial life and have also been doing some curatorial projects outside of the Nash Gallery, which is where I work. And so I've just kind of been scheming and sort of looking to see what's next for that as I'm on leave. So for me, I'm really excited to just like hunker down this winter before I go back to work in February um, and really build upon these ideas, both curatorial and in my own practice. If the people wanted to find you online, where would they go? Um, They can visit my website at TheraseYacovino.com. It's kind of a a hard speller. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also on Instagram, uh, TheraseTheRoof. Not hard to find, but if you just type in T-E-R-E-Z, Twin Cities, then super easy to come up. up. I'm the only Therese in town that I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Therese, thank you so much for sharing all of that with me. I, I feel like you did a good job of explaining your practice, and I just appreciate understanding your process more so that now when I look at those works, I have that background of understanding. Thanks. It was my pleasure. Thank you for joining us, Soda listeners. You can find our show notes and other information about us on our website at sodapodcast.blog. Please email us with any feedback or to alert us of any arts events coming up at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at stateoftheartspod or search for Soda Podcast. You can find episodes of State of the Arts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. We have a Patreon. There's a donation tab on our website. Donating to the Patreon will help us cover the costs of producing the podcast. And as always, our music is provided by The Von Tramps. Your lashes truly reach for the heavens. Oh, your wow. hair shines like the moonlight on the ocean. Oh my goodness! Yeah, wow, windy. your skin as soft as something. Soft. Okay, <laughs> that's Great. all I've got. Anyway, that's what's cool. uh, what are we gonna we're gonna talk about some stuff. <laughs>